This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke and I'm James. And this week we discuss Ray Bradbury's 1953 sci-fi novel Fahrenheit 451. Now let's allow ourselves to be bothered by ideas for a little while. The year is 1953. Eisenhower becomes president. The Korean War ends. The first Corvette is built in Flint, Michigan. Hugh Hefner publishes the very first issue of Playboy. The average cost of a new house is about $9,500. This is one year before J.R.R. Tolkien will write Fellowship of the Ring. And Ray Bradbury writes Fahrenheit 451. Pretty fitting that our last project and this project line up year-wise fairly closely yeah i didn't realize just how much of a contemporaries these two books are not to mention that this this book feels extremely vital when reading it right now i think it's going to lead us down all kinds of avenues to talk about maybe some uncomfortable ideas which uh i think is fitting with the themes of this novel right like to to engage with that definitely I also wanted to point out this little thing I thought was interesting. Uh, when this book came out, they published 200 limited edition asbestos lined fireproof copies of this novel that were numbered and signed by Ray Bradbury. Wow. That's wild. To do that in like the 50s is like, that must be worth so much money now. Yeah. I was going to say, I looked it up. So uh, depending on their condition, they can be worth anywhere from 6500 to about $15,000 per one, per one copy. That's wild. Pretty cool. So before we get into the novel itself, I don't know, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury was born in 1920 uh, in Illinois. He's uh, born to Swedish and, e- Swedish and English immigrants. He was an avid reader and writer throughout his youth, and he, uh, he knew he was going to go into the arts from an early age. He, was, uh, he, he grew up reading authors like H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, and Edgar Allan Poe. And in fact, he started writing traditional horror stories in the, in the, in the mode of Edgar Allan Poe until he was about 18. He read a bunch of stuff by uh, Robert A. Heinlein, Ar- Arthur C. Clarke, the early writings of Theodore Sturgeon. Bradbury cited H.G. Wells and Jules Verne as his primary science fiction influences. He liked Verne because he said he believes the human being is in a strange situation in a very strange world, and he believes that we can triumph by behaving morally. That's really cool. I, I like Verne as well. Yeah, he-, he-, he feels like he writes humanistic science fiction, uh, where-, where we dare to be human instead of mechanical. I, I kind of like that sentiment as well because this, this some of this kind of also reminded me of of Blade Runner in a way or Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right? Which came later. So I thought there's another interesting tidbit I learned was that he was uh, once rejected from Weird Tales for a short story called Homecoming, and then he was spotted by a young editorial assistant named Truman Capote, and Capote wow. picked up his manuscript out of the slush pile and decided to pu- that they needed to publish it. And uh, that that story went on to win uh, to place in the O. Henry Award in 1947. It was a big part of like his early career, I think. Bradbury about science fiction says, I don't write science fiction. I've only done one science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451 based on reality. Science fiction is a depiction for the, of the real. Fantasy is a depiction of the unreal. So Martian Chronicles is not science fiction. It's fantasy. 
It couldn't happen, you see. That's the reason it's going to be around for a long time, because it's a Greek myth, and myths have staying power. So I just thought that was an interesting distinction that he made there in between the genres, that he, he finds science fiction to be much more real. More like dystopian future almost, right? Like something right. that's feasible, like not really out of the realm of possibility anytime soon. Right. So I have a feeling he would say something more space opera-y or like Star Wars. Like he would say that's solidly fantasy, not mm-hmm. sci-fi. But, you know, that's just his definition of it, which I think is interesting. He feels he came into his own as a writer when he once saw a young girl at the beach go out into the water and never come back. I guess she drowned in like a rip current. Wow. He says years later he wrote about it and he was he felt tears flowing from him and he felt like he had taken a leap from emulating many writers to, he admired to finding his real voice as a writer. So he said, uh, if you're le- reluctant to weep, you won't live a full and complete life. He, he famously said, uh, you can't learn to write in college. It's a very bad, pl- bad place for writers because the teachers always think they know more than you do and they don't. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, so not very fond of the uh, of the MFA, I would say. <laughs> but it's interesting because he also had a lot of mentors growing up and a lot of people who he studied with and uh, was critique circles and stuff. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it is also a point well taken that that sometimes tried and true, like this is how things are done, not kind of knowledge can be a little bit um, stifling to creativity, right? Yeah, I can definitely see that. Because they're just going based off of what they know not based off of what maybe the new, like the new turning of of the of art is going to be. Mm-hmm. It seems like he had a really interesting relationship with technology because he predicted a lot of things. Like he predicted Bluetooth and, and earbuds and stuff like that in, in this book. And that was something that, you know, it's pretty amazing. Um, but it seems like he was very against a lot of it. And he said, uh, in a sense, computers are simply books, books all over the place. And he, and he thinks computers will be too. So much so that in 2010, he he uh, resisted the conversion of Fahrenheit 451 to ebooks. Wow! He said, "We have too many cell phones. We've got too many internets. We have to get rid of these <laughs> machines. We have too many machines now." <laughs> um, but he did eventually relent, and he and um, he agreed that Fahrenheit 451 could could be published in ebook, but its electronic form must be provided to be digitally downloaded by any library patron. And is the title remains the only book in Simon and Schuster catalog where this is possible. So you can get it anywhere you go, no matter what. Any library you can get it for free, downloaded it. That's the only reason he agreed to it. That's amazing, man. That's that's really cool. And can you imagine telling the publishing company that that's what you want done? You're like, yes, I want <laughs> yeah. my crazy awesome book. I want it so yeah. that anybody can get it anytime they want for free. From that's the, the only way I'll agree to it. Yeah. So he died in 2012. So not that long ago. Wow. At the age of 91. And his headstone reads, author of Fahrenheit 451. Oh, my gosh. So what else is he? Because I know I know the name, but I, I'd like to know like what other stuff he's written and known for. So his very first novel, if you want to call it that, was The Martian Chronicles, which I adore. Um, but it's really more of like loosely connected short stories. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's debatable whether or not you can call that a novel. And then he wrote Fahrenheit 451 in 1953. He would have been only 33 years old. Wow. Uh, yeah, when he published it. Uh, then he wrote a novel called Dandelion Wine, uh, which is also kind of loosely connected stories. Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is a tale about um, like a magic circus coming into town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a book called The Halloween Tree, another Death is a Lonely Business, uh, another Graveyard for Lunatics, Green Shadows, White Whale, 
Uh, another one that's a bunch of stories. He did. He was a prolific short story writer. He had a lot of short stories published throughout his entire life. He was famous for saying that he wrote every single day since he was like 12. So when he died, a bunch of other authors came out and, and made some pretty interesting statements. Uh, inclu- oh, and, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. uh, said that, that Bradbury was his muse for the better part of his sci-fi career. Wow. Wasn't Brad, wasn't he also involved in film in some way or like Hollywood in general? I think I think he was pretty connected to Hollywood. Um, I don't know. I didn't find a lot of details about that, but it said that he was he lived in California for at least a lot of his life and knew a lot of was good friends with I think one of the original creators of Star Trek. Wow. And a lot of a lot of these kind of guys. Um, so Neil Gaiman said that he felt the landscape of the world we lived in would be diminished if it had not been for him in our world. After he died, he said that. Um, and then uh, I wanted to read this one. This was by Stephen King. Uh, which is a favorite of the podcast. He said, Ray Bradbury wrote three great novels and 300 great stories. One of the latter was called A Sound of Thunder. The sound I hear today is the thunder of a giant's footsteps fading away, but the novels and stories remain in all their resonance and strange beauty. Which I thought was pretty fitting, you know? Because yeah. we, we were started out by uh, Stephen King here on this podcast with our IT coverage, and I'm sure we're going to return to him soon. Uh, it's I think it's just cool when the community comes together and is able to recognize great work like this. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the giants that we look up to, you know, they're they're standing on the shoulders of other giants. And sure. it's always cool to look back and see, like, who inspired them, the people who inspire us, who inspired them, and that whole lineage all the way up. Absolutely. Uh, so speaking of that, I, I just wanted to know what your experience is with this novel. And it sounds like you haven't read maybe much Ray Bradbury, but have you read this novel before? So I think... I can't remember very well, but I'm pretty sure that I've either read part of this book or in school or something like that um, because I was familiar with like the story. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'd seen the old movie or something. I, I don't think yeah, I Yeah, there is an older movie adaptation. I don't think that's what it was, but I am familiar somewhat with the idea of like what goes on and what the, but I don't remember any really plot details. It could be kind of what it, you know, people like to call it like cultural osmosis kind of thing. Like you've just heard it talked about so much and referenced in so many other things. You might just kind of know what it's about. Yeah. Honestly, that's probably what it is. It's probably just that like I've heard of the firemen Mm -hmm. and just know about like the repression of knowledge and stuff that goes on. So yeah, that's kind of my experience with it. What was your experience with it? Did you read it growing up or anything? I read it in high school, maybe middle school. I think it was high school though. And I actually remember really enjoying it. And, and this was the time in my life where I was very hit or miss about most of the classics. Um, mm. I loved reading. I always loved reading. But it was more like I re- loved reading on my own, not necessarily the stuff they would give me in school. I feel that, yeah. I had a lot of that. Yeah. Every now and then I'd find something I liked. And I, I remember this book standing out as something that I really enjoyed even back then. But I will say just reading what we have, which is the first third of this, the per- part one, mm-hmm. we, um, I, it, it's a whole different experience now, reading it as an adult. Yeah. Especially because, like, when I kind of learned about this, the osmosis that I had received, yeah, um, I wasn't really as politically active. I would say. I mean, I wasn't with of voting age, so it was one of those things where it was like I wasn't really thinking about politics that often, or thinking about what corporations or what leaders could be could be doing and and influencing. There, there was a certain naivete. I agree on my part where I thought, yeah, this is you know, this isn't our world. This is just like cautionary tales from like back before I was born when we hadn't figured this all out yet. I kind of assumed like adults had figured this all out. We were all, we were good to go that kind of thing. Definitely. 
Well, before we get into the plot itself, we should talk about how this project's going to go down, right? Like we're going to start with, we read part one of this novel, and we're going to save part two and three for next week, and then we're going to watch the new HBO adaptation coming out, which looks pretty good, and we'll cover that the week after that. So it'll be like a three-week project, right? Yeah, exactly. Looking forward to it. So the the adaptation, I think, starring Michael Shannon uh, as Beatty, I believe, and Montag is going to be Michael B. Jordan. Right. But if you're ready, I think we should get into the plot of what happens here in part one of this book. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to say was that I don't know, like, plot wise, what's going to be going on. So a lot of this is going to end up being like theory on my part. I think I'm going to end up like. Okay. So you don't know what happens in the second half of this book. No, not really. I kind of knew like basically this part that we covered. I kind of knew like what was coming. Yeah. Premise. Yeah. I'm I'm excited to get into it. Last thing I wanted to mention was the the cover art the illustration on yeah the I, i've seen a couple of them but the one specifically of like it's a paper a, man on fire paper man on fire exactly yeah it's awesome looking you just wanted to just mention it was cool <laughs> yeah it's awesome yeah i think it's the original i think it's the original cover art and i think i it's still reprinted with that same cover art i think quite often so yeah and i don't know if that's a spoiler for this whole project that we're going to be doing is he going to set himself on fire I don't really know, but it seems like it might be something that happens. Well, I guess it's not a spoiler if you don't know it's a spoiler, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah, let's get into it. All right, man. I, I just wanted to lead off by saying that this book has one of the most iconic opening lines, I think, in all of literature. Maybe that might be a bold statement, but I, I think it is. When you talk about, because we have to get told as writers, you really got to hook with that first line because that's going to be so important, right? Right. And, yeah, the, the opening line to this book, it was a pleasure to burn. Um, it's just so like it just grabs you and you're like what like why you know like it just (laughs) why are you burning you want to you have to read the next sentence right like you can't stop there you can't be like it was a pleasure to burn all right set that down oh man (laughs) um and and, you know this it's often cited when we talk about this and writing courses um best opening lines like you always get this one yeah i didn't even think about that yeah uh, but definitely it hooked me right away so we meet we meet Montag and he's uh, he's we learned that he's a fireman. Um, he's burning. He's you know th- there's a lot of talk of kerosene, and it says he's, they 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 bring down the tatters of history. They all all of these guys have this grin of men singed and driven back by flame, flame which I thought was interesting too because I, I thought it was he was drawing a comparison between kind of the joy they feel at what they're doing, but us also kind of painful. And so their grins are like simultaneously grins, but also like grimaces and pain. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the kind of stuff you get with Bradbury, where he gives a lot of really loaded descriptions that you can almost read two ways often, right? And it really opens itself up for debate. And and that's why this book is so cool, because I think it really is a prism that you can find a lot of stuff in, um, especially if you're looking for certain things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that with the characters a lot. He kind of set it up to where I didn't know who was in on the fact that these books are important and, and we're burning them because we, we're trying to censor versus the people who are doing it because of ignorance and all that. And as we go along, you kind of certain characters who you thought might not have really been on the in, like been thinking about certain things do end yeah. up being somewhat conscious of what's going on. Well, this is the story is, is about Montag and his sort of awakening, right, to mm-hmm. to what to what these books are and what they mean to society and what they mean to him. I think it's also interesting because it opens up a lot of questions about what are the answers to those questions? Why are mm-hmm. books important? Why, why does uh, 
life without them feel so empty. So so yeah, so that's just like kind of the opening little scene. And then we get we get Montag in the in the firehouse and he he leaves to go home for the day. And he's walking home and he starts to feel this like he's being watched or something. And he comes around a corner and he sees this woman coming towards him. And I just like that he describes like the whirling leaves gliding along with her, which makes it look like they're kind of carrying her on like a conveyor belt and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And just like the way, I mean, Bradbury's prose is just incredibly good. And you can see why something like this leaps out of the slush pile to like a Truman Capote, I think. Because when you read this kind of stuff, I don't know how you don't see it as brilliant. Uh, there's another great line here where he's ta- so he starts talking with Clarice. We learn that she, her name is and she she comments on him being a fireman and he, she can see that he's clearly proud of it. And in his pride, he says, kerosene is nothing but perfume to me, which I just thought was a really cool line. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and she can kind of see that all of this is like built up bravado almost like it's all kind of empty, too, though. And she immediately kind of sees the false the false note to it. Mm hmm. She notices that there's something there's something about him that is resistant almost like she's she realizes like, oh, you're actually acknowledging me in this world where uh, that's another thing is the the world is very much like people. People ignore each other. They're very much divided and individual and they don't care about other people. So for him to pay attention to her and actually like look at her and pay attention, she realized like, oh, there's something there that not nobody else would really yeah she she thinks there's something more to him than than seems because she's just she says i maybe later but she says she's met other firemen who Mm -hmm. are you know wouldn't give her the time of day kind of thing also his name's guy montag which Mm -hmm. i don't know whenever i hear guy especially in like a literary like a literary sense it makes me think like every you know joe every man kind of thing right right like he's supposed to be standing in for for us for you know for society for for this kind of I don't know. I don't know. There's just something broad about the name Guy, right? right. I know there are people with that name, but <laughs> just in a book, it can it can seem that way. Mm-hmm. She also mentions uh, she's 17 and crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Those two always go together, according to her uncle. She often mentions being crazy, which I think is pretty funny. And she asks him if he ever reads the books that he burns, and he says, no, of course not. That's against the law. So this is the first where we learn that, like, not only are they burning books, but it's against the law to read them, right? Mm-hmm. She asks him, is it true that firemen used to put out fires? And he says, no, take my word for it. That's, you know, basically he says that's fake news. You Mm -hmm. know, like he's like, he's like, no way. That's, you know, we've been, they've been burning them forever. Houses were always fireproof. Yeah. So she also laments uh, how drivers are not taking time to slow down and see things as they are, uh, which makes, this is all making Montag very uncomfortable. Like these observations she's making, right? Mm -hmm. And they get to her house because he walks her home. And when they get to her house, the lights are all on and she can hear people. Ta- he can hear people talking inside. She's a neighbor of his, we should also say. Um, so and he's like, what's going on? What are they doing? And she says that they're all oh, they're just like talking in there. And he's like, what are they talking about? Um, people don't do that anymore. You know, people don't and, sit around and talk. Yeah. Yeah. And she asks him if he's happy and he doesn't even like understand the question. And then and then she just disappears inside. So, yeah. What was your what was your take on Clarice here in her first her first introduction? This is the character that that I connected with most because I was just like, oh, this is like, this is. I I like to think that in most situations I want to question everything. Right. So like, even if I was in this society, I would hope that I would be questioning these things and thinking about things. There's a little bit of the stop to smell the roses thing, and nobody does that anymore. I think at some point she like says there's a man in the moon and um, all these different things that people don't have time for in this in this dystopian future, and I feel like for us to be introduced to this world as Montag is being like 
because of her observations he's seeing starting to think about and see the world with fresh eyes or new eyes it's mm-hmm. it's i don't know i think it's a cool way for us to experience it as he's like coming out of this this like yeah. brainwashing almost yeah he's starting to notice the holes in it he's starting to notice the way it's unfulfilling right mm-hmm. and he doesn't even understand why he feels that way yet it's just more like she's introducing. Now, it seems like he's already thought of some of this, like it's been, which we learn later is true. But this is kind of the real thing that jumpstarts his his brain and thinking about things differently and starting to wonder. When she asks him, are you happy? Like, that's a really loaded question that he doesn't even react to at first. But I think that question haunts him, right? Like, what does that mean? Am I truly happy? Of course I'm happy, right? Like, I'm married. I, You know, I have a, a room with three walls of TVs or whatever and... <laughs> And, and like, why wouldn't I be happy, right? But he does realize also that he's not. I, I should also say, I called her a woman, but really she's a girl. She's 17. And mm-hmm. at, I don't know, like their relationship seemed at first like he was attracted to her. But I'm I'm not sure if that's where, if that's where Bradbury was going. Um, I think he's supposed to maybe feel a little more fatherly towards her. I don't know. What, what was your take on that? I think so. I think there's even a line in there about how he feels fatherly in some way. Yeah. He does comment a lot about like how beautiful she is, which I guess uh, I could be forgiven for thinking that. But yeah, I think he does feel more fatherly towards her and he is married, although we see that his relationship with his wife is kind of a disaster. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Speaking of the wife, the relationship with the wife somewhat reminded me of the relationship with the wife in um, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah. That Deckard has. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So like that's kind of where it starts to slowly it's, you know, sci-fi dystopian future. People are too involved and, and I don't know different stories but well and, and philip k dick i think you could say was almost definitely influenced by this novel because this novel was huge when it came out right and the, he yeah. wrote to andrew extreme like what was it 1963 something like that so like maybe a decade later yeah, I, I don't I know so. i can't accurate. remember the I think exact date. Like that. Yeah. yeah but it was definitely in the 60s i'm pretty sure of that uh, it might have been 68 even something like that um so i i can't imagine he wasn't influenced by this book um, it is, you know, I, I do want to point out, I think this is kind of the proto version of the uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope that we get a lot today. Um, I think this, you know, this is 50s. We have to remember that, right? See, it's hard to hold it by today's standards, right? Yeah. But there is a little bit of like the sad sack average dude who's sad about his life. And then he meets a girl and she's like crazy and, and, and interesting and looks at life in a different way. And it kind of like breaks him out of his his everyday life and and like i get why that trope is kind of being lampooned of late and like people are looking at it and going you know what i mean kind of like rightfully identifying as kind of bullshit and 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 you know why is the woman saving his life through her like weirdness and all this stuff i don't know but on the other hand like i like a lot of those movies where that goes down like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is a great example like that's definitely got that in that story but i love that movie Right. So I don't know, like tropes sometimes like I think it is worthwhile to look at them and kind of deconstruct them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if something has that going on is bad, in my opinion. Yeah. Now that you say that, I def- I see that. But I didn't even realize that, you know, the the roots of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl was being were being laid in this story right now. I mean, I don't know. It would be interesting to see. But because, because there's like her whole family, we come to find out is like very weird and quirky and like, yeah. You know, we, they talk about later how it's like you can't you can't stop their people's environments from from influencing them. You can only stop the books and all this other stuff. So, it is interesting to see somebody on the total opposite end of the brainwashing in this story. 
and her the stuff with her family i thought was really was really interesting specifically talking about like they don't they talk and they they hang out the the uncle's been arrested however many times for things that you shouldn't be arrested for right yeah and and, and usually the manic pixie dream girl is a romantic interest and yeah. i think here it's not it's more of like a daughter thing so like i said proto maybe but I just, it did make me think of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I'm not trying to say that it is necessarily that. And, you know, people may think I'm full of shit for even bringing it up, <laughs> but I just, it, it's something that occurred to me. So I thought I'd mention it. So, so we do meet here Mildred. He goes into his house, right? And, oh, I thought it was interesting. He, he puts his glove in a hole in the door and it like recognizes him and opens, which I know it's different, but I thought this was really interesting. Um, prediction about like fingerprint scanning technology I and mean, we gotta think back because it's written in the 50s and he's right. basically predicting that you can use your hand to unlock a door right pretty cool yeah now i don't know if he invented that you know what i mean i don't know if other science I, I don't know enough about sci-fi to know like have those concepts were around or not at this time yeah it's funny because like there were things in this in here where i was like that doesn't that would never happen like things that he's predicted that hasn't haven't necessarily happened yet but he was talking about later on they talk about how like cars are speeding by so quickly that they extended billboards so drastically so that people could see them for a long time as they sped by yeah honestly like Like, that's something i could see like advertise like ad people and advertisers doing in order to make sure that they their products are seen still yeah i just don't think it works logistically (laughs) like i feel like a digital screen it's probably too difficult to, yeah, it's too difficult to match it to the stretching of your vision. And I also don't know that that's how eyes work. Um, <laughs> uh, but I can see why it's kind of an interesting idea, right? right. And whether or not it's ever going to happen, I, you know, it's still kind of a cool concept, right? And it yeah. says something. And it's like the idea from, to bring back the Ready Player One movie episode that we did, mm-hmm. where Sorrento... Uh, is talking about how he wants to put ads all over the entire screen, like 80% of the screen. So it just kind of made me think of that. Which, by the way, I should say, Ray Bradbury probably wouldn't be a fan of that novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just from the way that he, uh, his love-hate relationship with technology that we see in this book right. alone makes makes me suspect. Um, so we go inside, and speaking of that, um, his, his wife is said to be like... She, so we find out they have separate beds, and she's on her bed, and he, she has these seashells on her eyes, and then some sort of um buzzing things in her ears and um they're very much like earbuds to me and i i don't know like it seems to me that he's kind of predicting like bluetooth earbuds and vr and vr yeah because the things on her eyes i it seemed to me like maybe that was like a, a virtual world she was almost seeing right or a screen of some kind yeah yeah i'm not really sure and he doesn't really define the technology other than just kind of like uh comparing it to things Montag comes in and he kind of thinks like something's a little odd and he, he finds he actually finds out that she's like laying there like still and cold and he kind of freaks out because his foot hits an empty bottle and he realizes that she's OD'd on sleeping pills. Right. So he runs over to the phone and he calls uh, an emergency number and these guys show up and this is a really interesting and it kind of shows you how this book's going to be. Um, the guys who show up are not like really EMTs or doctors or anything. They're just like machine operators and they show up with two machines. One of them is this like crazy snake thing that I guess they feed down your throat and it just pumps your stomach of like whatever's in there Mm -hmm. and pumps it out. And he describes it as like nothingness and melancholy and like sadness that he's equating with what's in her stomach and how it just pumps it all out. And then there's a second machine that literally changes all your blood out so that you don't have any of it in your bloodstream anymore. Yeah. 
And I don't know, I just like really, it was really cool the way he uses it all as a metaphor of like, you're taking all the sadness out of the person too, along with the Mm -hmm. chemical. Um, So I don't know. I don't know if that's anti-drug or what it is, but it's, it is interesting, right? Yeah, I think there's something to be said there about people getting to the point. Well, this whole, this whole situation, her ODing is, is like this throwaway society, right? Where it's like, I'll be all right. Things will, things will work out. And she she's so like involved in everything she just wants to be happy so she's just gonna take her sleep pills i think it's do you, did you do you think she tried to kill herself here Is that i don't think happened? so i don't think you so. Don't i think, think it was so. negligence yeah i think it was just she was just like because he uh, later says like maybe you just accidentally took two and then accidentally took two more and accidentally took two more like that kind of thing i think it's less of that and more of just being like not caring like just being like i'm just gonna take these and not worry about prescription not worry about because they're just not worried about anything really yeah that everything will work out in the end is basically like how a lot of people are seeing the society. Or they just don't, or she just doesn't care. Yeah. I See, I, I took it to be more like part of her, some deep part of her, like is un- dissatisfied with life. And, and that like, part of her. And do something, yeah. And to me, that part of her tried to commit suicide. And and later she doesn't even remember doing it and claims, oh, I'd never do that. I don't know why why you say I would do that. But um. Yeah, that was my take. And then, yeah, so the other thing with the machine operator guys, they just pump her out and then they go, he goes, she'll be hungry when she wakes up, make sure she gets some food, and then they leave. <laughs> and and they're very much like treating the symptom and not the cause, right? Like there's mm. no, they don't talk to her and find out what happened. There's no mental health. You know what I mean? There's right. nothing like that. There's they're no, you should up. see somebody about this. Yeah, it's literally yeah. just like a, oh, you did this thing, we're going to undo it, and then we're going to leave. Right. So speaking of that, she wakes up the next day and she's hungry and doesn't know why. And she's um, she's just like eating toast. And he says, you know, do you know what happened last night? And she says, I don't know. I can't remember. Did we have a party? And Montag's like, yeah, we had a party. But uh, a little bit later, he does tell her like, you know, what happened? And she says, uh, no way. I would never do that. And then this is when we first get introduced to the idea of the, the TV living room. Right. Mm-hmm. And they literally have TV walls and she stands in the middle of it and um basically it's kind of vrs because she has this interaction with the like actors on the screens and she plays a part she has this mm-hmm. script that she reads from but it seems like very much like not involved people were so entertained by this stuff that she literally all she said was like that's a great idea or something like that yeah, like it's like very banal right like there's nothing there's no real story to it it's right. just kind of like interacting with fake people it keeps people entertained that are, you know what I mean? There's certain there's certain threshold of entertainment that I feel like he's trying to make a commentary on, where he's saying that like people in this in this world are very easily occupied and like they don't need a lot of anything to keep them going. Just things that are, I don't know, exciting or what they perceive as insi- exciting, like being in a show. Yeah, it's almost just more like yeah, just stringing along and existing and just like the mechanical motions of doing something is all it takes to make some people happy i guess yeah and that's what these will you know so also can you can you make any extrapolations about maybe like our entertainment today and is he trying to say something about it or what yeah i mean there's i I think there's a lot to be said for the stuff that he's he's basically calling out in this that that we've we're sliding into this like i i genuinely believe that like we're people are people are getting more and more involved in and it can be seen as a good thing and a bad thing, but I think the the bad side of it that he's talking about here is that you stop having the human to human interaction. You stop having uh, people caring about actual problems and stop caring about actual 
works of art and stop caring about all these things that that are important and are challenging things that are challenging they look away from and they just want to have an easy existence that they just go along and and there's nothing to be left behind when they're when they're dead absolutely man that um i i also think he's talking to me this reminds me of like reality television Mm -hmm. it's 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 not necessarily lampooning like the great television we have today because i think i think bradbury would recognize that as art that 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 makes you think and 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 challenges you right Mm -hmm. whereas i think he would look at something like jersey shore or maybe even like talent shows you know like american scott talent or like whatever top model like any of these shows right Mm -hmm. Um, all these food shows and i'm not trying to say that you know you should feel bad if you watch these but i think he is saying that if you like empty entertainment can especially if that's all you consume become kind of mind-numbing right and you can just get into this habit and it's interesting because it it seemed to me like he thought for this to really catch on, people would have to have an interaction with it, right? Um, like being able to say lines and stuff. But I think in actuality, it's shown that people don't. They just literally just want to watch it and just sit there. That's right. all people need to be happy. Some people. I mean, it's crazy because like I can't not compare it to now. So like being yeah. being in in the fifties and thinking about this stuff, I'm sure that there were some people who could see like had the foresight to see like this. These are issues that are going to become a problem. But like, I mean, think about what TV would have been like back then. Right. Like, it was still just starting to even be a thing, and he was already predicting this. That's what I'm saying. Like you can't. I can't imagine what it was like for for readers back then to try to like think about like it was probably like us when we were younger where we were just like oh these things are way off we don't have to worry about this or this would never happen people are too right. smart for this and I mean honestly like I've been there's been some some shifts and things that have happened over the past couple of years and I've been realizing more and more how, how people will act in similar ways to what's going on in this book you know it's like yeah. the group think and the and a lot of whatever's easiest and not challenging and and I don't know it's it's very very important to what's going on right now I think sure yeah yeah and you're talking about you know in our political climate with Trump and, and everything and, and yeah and racial climate of what's going on yeah. and, and suppression of news and everything yeah and cha- cha- you know news that doesn't agree with people on both sides can often be suppressed you know you, you know sometimes stories can be written but i also you know i think one side more than the other um but <laughs> um I, I don't want to say anyone's got their hands clean completely it's i think there is a cautionary tale for everyone here about about uh engaging with ide- uncomfortable ideas and alternate perspectives um but i think that really comes to a head later so let's let's keep going through kind of the plot here before we get into even more of that yes he runs back into the girl from the night before, uh, Clar- uh, Clarice, and he says, he literally says, hey, what are you up to? And she says, I'm still crazy. <laughs> that just made me like laugh out loud just because I love the idea. Like next time someone asks me, what are you up to? I'm going to go, I'm still crazy. <laughs> I'm still crazy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's such a, like it doesn't answer the question you asked. <laughs> and it also it's one of those things you can say to kind of prove it. Like you're proving yeah. the point you're making. <laughs> yeah. Um, they have this exchange where she rubs a dandelion under her chin, and I guess if it like stains your chin, it means you're in love. And she does it, and then it does stain her chin. And then she says, you know, let's try you. And she rubs it under his chin, and it doesn't stain his chin. And she says, oh, that's sad. You're, you know, you're not in love. With, you don't love anything, essentially. Mm-hmm. And this really upsets him, and then she feels bad for it, right? And and then they ha- uh, she opens her mouth, and she's tasting rain. And he, he asks her, like, what are you doing? And, and she just talks about how she, like, experiences things, right? That's something she's really into. Yeah. And this is all on his way to work. Um, so, so, yeah, what did you make of that, like, him 
not having the stain, I guess. Does that what does that mean something symbolically? So I almost felt like it, this was the the part where I felt like it might have been like a little bit of like a romantic relationship going on between these two. Right. Because it was like, did she love him? Is that what the implication is? Yeah, yeah. And But I think it had something to do with like, was she saying love someone or something or just love in yeah. general? Because it's like, if he's, he's so like hollowed out, he's such a hollow person that he doesn't really care about anything at this point. Like right. He's just like, he's not there. And she loves everything. You know what I mean? She's interested in everything. She's She wants to, you know, hang out in the grass and knit sweaters and stuff uh, was an example. And she's... You know, she's exploring Picking the world and experiencing the things. Roadside and yeah, yeah. So she's experiencing life while he's, you know, just like dragging along, sleepwalking through it. Which I, I think everybody can always take a moment and <laughs> self-appraise and wonder if you're like exper- like if you're if you're enjoying your life enough and you're experiencing the moment enough and that kind of stuff, right? Definitely. Yeah. So he gets back to the firehouse, and this is the first time where we where we meet the mechanical hound. Mm-hmm. Which I this definitely wanted to. What did yeah. you? What did you, I wanted to get your thought of this? So I don't it's, even know. It sleeps down in like its own little sleeps, quote unquote, and its own little like thing on the bottom floor, and he goes up to it. Oh well, first we, he talks about what it is. Right, it has eight legs like a spider, but he calls it a hound, and then um, the firemen literally will like make bets on different nights, and they'll set out cats and rats and chickens, and they'll bet on like how quickly or how long it'll take for it to hunt them down and kill them. Right. And it kills them by injecting them with like morphine and basically like, just like putting them down. Yeah, chemicals or anything. It has like all seemingly like an endless supply of like all chemicals or drugs or anything. Right. And when he touches it, it wakes up and growls at him, which scares the piss out of him and he and he like goes he has so the 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 um the pole is like kind of high tech pole where mm-hmm. you can just like touch it and it'll like it'll carry you up. I thought that was cool, yeah. Um, so he does that and he escapes from it. Um, whether or not it was actually going to attack him, I don't know. So I wanted to ask you that too. Like, why does it growl at him? What does that mean, at least, that it does? So I I think there's a significant reason why it's a hound because dogs, like, sniff things out. Right. And they, like, they're, like, very perceptive um, to what's going on with people and what's going on with things in general. So I don't know if I, – I couldn't really understand whether it used to be a dog and was, like, a cyborg dog or if it was, like – and like exact replica dog but it was like completely completely machine um yeah i i got the impression completely machine but he doesn't really like i said he doesn't really define everything right um i think and he has a couple of really interesting thoughts where he says like living yet not living sleeping yet not asleep like that kind of stuff and it's the dichotomy of what perceptions he's putting onto it as a living creature but then him also realizing it's just a machine and it's not actually alive yeah, which is why some of the reason why I felt like there was more to it than just being a machine. Well, and then that just makes me think of Westworld, which we talked about <laughs> in our last bonus episode. Man, whether or not that machine is alive is a really interesting question. Yeah. And it seems like it's perceiving something like some sort of doubt in him. Like he's okay. like he's not fully on board with doing all this stuff anymore and he's starting to question things that's that's my that's what i figured but he also mentioned something about how like it may have been like like tampered with which i don't know how to feel about that i don't think i think that's kind of like a i don't know i think he's trying to lead us somewhere with that i don't think that's actually what happened but maybe i like the idea of it metaphorically being because he has doubts now and so that the hound like you said can sniff out these doubts and is reacting to that um, I think we get that backed up later where he when you're when he imagines the hound standing outside his house and he's yeah. afraid of it. And I right. think that at least to him, he thinks of it as perceiving his doubt and then like it kind of represents his guilt about mm-hmm. it, I guess. Yeah. 
so when he's up there, this is when we first meet ba- Beatty, who is his captain. And his captain kind of jokingly says, oh, do you have something to hide? Yeah. And, <laughs> he's um, very perceptive as well, speaking of which. Yeah, he's totally on to, to him having doubts, I think. And oh, also, this is the first time where he says he thinks that this could have something to do with what he has at home behind the grill. Which the they had been, grill. he kept talking about like looking at a grill and I yeah. kind of, I kind of figured quickly that, that he had books in there. You thought it was, okay. So yeah. it's later revealed in his books, but for now we didn't, we don't know exactly what it is, but he thinks about this being connected to that. So that kind of backs up our theory, right? Mm-hmm. Cause there's not anything else it could really be hit. You know what I mean? Something that he's worried about. I guess it could, it could have been a multitude of things, but I just figured in this story, the thing they're trying to do is burn books. So it makes sense that he would have books. Yeah. So over the next uh, few days, we find out that he's feeling more alive and he's feeling, he's, he's, or it seems to me like he's feeling more alive and he's feeling more at ease. And he sees Clarice every day and talks to her every day. Um, we hear her describe what school's like for her and how she's been labeled an antisocial person, which she finds funny because she actually likes to talk to people and she's being labeled antisocial because she doesn't participate in the sort of mind-numbing things that they want you to do at school. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about how people hurt each other these days. Which, um, I don't know, that's pretty telling. You know, you can think about today. and, and, and Oh, and she talks about people, sh- literally children shooting each other. Which definitely made me think of school shootings and the rise of school shootings, right? Definitely, yeah. I don't know how he predicted something like that. But there's been a, obviously a massive surge in Surgeon that stuff is, yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, I, I did think it was, he kind of takes, I don't know if it's a cheap shot, but <laughs> a little bit. He does not seem to have a very high opinion of abstract art. Because he talks, he says museums are filled only with abstract art these days. And they lament um, about art that used to show people something and, and, and used to show something and actually have people in it. Um, <laughs> wow, that is kind of a ding. Well, it's like, he's, it, you know, you could, if you extrapolate it out, it's like he's saying that abstract art doesn't have any meaning, like it doesn't have any value. Right. But you could defend it by saying the kind of abstract art that they're allowing to be in museums is the kind that doesn't mean anything. I could see that, yeah. Abstract art is like it's kind of what you put on it, right? It's, like yeah, it's, exactly. It's what you bring to it, and if maybe if society has been kind of hollowed out and people aren't bringing anything to it in any way, then you're not going to get anything out of it, I guess, right? Yeah, that makes sense. So, but I, I when I read it, I was like, ooh, burn, <laughs> burn <laughs> sick burn, got him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So th- this whole book, like the themes of being unique and free thinking and 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 rebelling against like com like you know the way things are going is all, to me all being very emph- emphasized and put forward is like a good thing, right? Yeah, I mean it's a motiv- it's motivating to me, man. Like genuinely reading this book, I'm, it gets me hyped up a little bit. Like I'm like we got to do something, we got to get more politically <laughs> active, we got to get out there, and like we I mean right. we absolutely fighting should. back, right? So back in the firehouse, they're playing cards. And oh, over the radio, we hear something about people, about the country preparing for war, and that's the first we hear of kind of the outside world. And 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 Montag admits to the other firemen that he's been wondering what it would feel like to have his house burned down for having books in it. And 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 Beatty says, well, the people are sent to the asylum, um, or I guess we learn that people are sent to an asylum when they go, like cops arrest them and and send them to like literally just like a you know insane asylum for having books. Um, he also mentions a list of banned book, which is literally millions of books long, mm-hmm. which to me, it doesn't seem like they're like going through books and, and, and going, mm, is this on the banned list? <laughs> it's pretty much all books are banned, right? Well, yeah. Basically, yeah. Um, he also, uh, during this conversation, says once upon a time and Beatty immediately identifies it as he's like, hmm, what did you just say? Like very like pointedly. And he realizes that he says it because he once saw it on like a fairy tale book that he picked up. 
this is I thought this was funny. We 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 see the the handbook, and uh, the handbook says that uh, uh, Ben Franklin was the very first fireman. <laughs> um, and we see a lot of this revisionist history, right? And well, like we see the rules of that of of uh of what it is to be a fireman. Um, which I I want to I'm gonna probably put up post a picture on our Instagram or whatever because I thought that was a pretty cool little section. Um, but this made me think about. Uh, what we hear about happening in Texas, especially in other places where they're literally going into textbooks and changing Native American history, like what happened with the Native Americans, right? They're saying that the Native Americans gave over their land and basically all was, you know, all was happy. Nothing bad happened. Right. This is the extreme version of that, right? Of like we're revising his history and whitewashing it and getting away, getting getting rid of anything that makes you look bad. Mm-hmm. Like what it can do literally talks about how they, they try to get them as young as possible they try to start start this process very early on and the earlier they get them the easier it is and and there's a lot of that going on where where like we can draw parallels to today like you're saying like teaching like like students see teachers and like whether whether they love school or not they see teachers as like authorities on this information and for them right. to be giving them false information is like going to change their perception on things going forward through their whole life well and it shows, like, because some people might say, like, oh, it's harmless. You'll find out the truth later anyway, like, that kind of thing. But it, it shows, I mean, like, I think that's a super naive thing to say. But this really shows, like, no, if you if you start writing these things out of the textbooks, it can start erasing it. And then those things can be forgotten. The lessons that that can teach you can be forgotten. It's, I mean, it's terrible. It's a really bad thing to do. Agreed, man. We got to stop. I think it's something. I think it's something we we should all be really on the lookout for, and not like and not ever allow. We shouldn't allow you know things like that to be written out of textbooks. Mm-hmm. So uh, they they're about to go out on this call to this woman's house on a fire call to burn some books, and I think this is a really this this is a really cool part of this book where it really turns. But I thought we'd t- stop for a moment and tell you about Audible. Yeah, Audible is an app that you can download on your phone or tablet anything and they have like something like 80,000 audiobooks that you can go through and listen to and they've been nice enough to give us an affiliate link it's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film and with that you get 30 free days to their service and one free audiobook in their collection i love listening to audiobooks they they are great for multitasking great for this podcast because i can listen and take notes um, sometimes you get a book that is read by a really cool narrator um, sometimes big name authors um, we'll even, I'm sorry, not big name authors, big name actors will actually come in and do audiobooks. I, I've heard of a few examples of that. Like, uh, I think there's a Pet Cemetery coming out with Michael C. Hall, you know, of Dexter fame, who's going to read it. Uh, That's awesome. So it's cool stuff like that. And and I wanted to give a shout out to this audiobook, which is read by Tim Robbins. Really cool. He does a great job reading it. Now, I have a physical copy and I was reading, but every now and then I would turn on the audiobook for like a section if I wanted to keep it up while I had to go do something else. Right. And he does a great job. Like, uh, you know, most narrators can't quite like on his level bring character. Right. And he he like has characters for Beatty. He has characters for, for each woman. Like he's really good. So um, this is a great audiobook, and I, I definitely recommend it. It's only like five hours long. So if you're looking for an audiobook that you can get through fast, this is definitely one of them. Um, and you can get that if you haven't signed up for Audible yet. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Use that to sign up and you can get a free audio book and free 30 days for the service. And yeah, check it out. So they get a, they get this call, right? And they head out. They without like slide down the pole, go get in their truck in the middle of the night and drive out to this house. And it's interesting how like 
it's 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 such a um it's an emergency like you know just like regular firemen like well, they have to go now 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 right right <laughs> and they get there and this woman is like out on her porch and she seems to like know that they've been called and she's like be acting kind of strange and recites this line to them when they, and he doesn't know what it means and and they go inside and they all rush upstairs because the tip that they'd been given which she says was from her neighbor is that uh he, he suspects that there's there's books upstairs we also see this as kind of the witch hunt it can it can be right because literally they just called it in on suspicion someone said i suspect my neighbor of this and that now this is happening they show up in their you know in their in their truck so we can see how that could you know be really shitty and the firemen, and I just love the way he describes it. Literally, they're like hacking down doors with their hatchets that are that are uh, unlocked, and they're just like having fun destroying things, and literally just like falling over each other in a rush of excitement and joy, right? And they they literally start throwing books down from the from the attic, and they flutter down, and and Bradbury describes them as slaughtered birds, mm-hmm. and they're just like landing around uh, Montag and the woman. And I, it's like it's it's really cool how he describes this uh, destruction as being like both beautiful and just awful, and it's very evocative too. Because if you ever seen a book fall, it does kind of flutter and 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 you know seems like has wings, right? Definitely. So Montag does say that the woman still being there is kind of spoiling the ritual that they usually have for this sort of thing, mm-hmm. and he thinks that maybe the the other guys are making more noise to fill the silence of her, like, judging gaze as she just stares at them. She does have this, like, presence where her her disapproving and her... It's like a victim. It brings a victim to this crime, whereas... Or not crime, I guess it's the law, but it gives a face to it where he says, like, normally they're just there burning, like, things that don't have any feelings. And so it's much easier for him to do where she, like, can cry about it and, like, show how much it means to her. Mm-hmm. Um, also while he's standing there, a book lands in his hands and he literally looks down at it and he reads one line, which is time has fallen asleep in the afternoon sunshine, which I looked it up. It's from a poem by a poet named Alexander Smith. And I don't know, like I wanted to ask you, why does this line like stand out so strongly to him? Cause he's really affected by it when he, when he reads it and just like what your take on that is. Well, I feel like, I mean, the quote is kind of a commentary on, on some of the stuff that's going on, too, because it's it's like progress and, and knowledge and, and intellect is part of moving things along. And they're saying, like, time has stopped. So people are having such a good time in the afternoon sunshine. So they're, it's, it's almost like this idea of progress is being halted by people's, like, blissful unawareness of what's going on. Like, the sunshine is just, like, they're happy. And they're mm. they're they're not aware that like time is kind of frozen in this in this period because they're not advancing and spreading knowledge and and I, that's kind of what I got from it. That's interesting reading. I mean, I, honestly, I didn't I didn't go that way, but I like it. Like that's a cool way to think about it in the context in the context of this book, right? Um, I guess I took it more as like a face value, sort of um, almost like a like a Robert Frost line or something. Like it's a very um, or a token. Like it was very pastoral to me. It was very like it, it just um, if you've ever had like a like a slow afternoon where you're just like sitting out in the sun, how it can seem like time is kind of stopping. Right. And it mm-hmm. and then like the 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 warmth of that moment can be drawn out. Um, and why I think it's so striking to him is that it's well, first off, it's also kind of a poetic line with the, uh, the kind of slant line rhyme between time and sh- sunshine. So he could be struck a little bit by the kind of musicality of it. But then also just the like truism 
of that line and the kind of observation someone else has and how mm-hmm. that observation can then land in your mind and make you think about something that you otherwise wouldn't think about. Like that kind of shows the power of the written word. Yeah, I get that. Cause that's kind of what Clarice is, is um, go, like she does that on a regular basis right. and like to, to like put that in words and have it down for you to look at and think about is, is maybe strikes him and, and pushes him to even more into this thought provoking process that he's going to go through. Yeah, and that can also explain, you know, if you go on a meta level, like why Bradbury takes such care with his prose and writes things in such beautiful ways is that he is trying to strike people. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he he wants to write a line that will strike someone like this one strikes Montag here. Yeah. Um, so in this moment, he also, he talks about his hand like it completely has a mind of its own. It basically grabs a book and just like shoves it under his armpit and then comes out and does a little flourish like i don't have anything <laughs> and, and so basically he just like steals a book right and the men are start dousing everything in kerosene you know which is just filling up with uh you know the whole house of fumes the woman is upset that this is happening and Beatty literally says to her none of these books agree with one another what are you doing you know like what are you doing and i thought that was really interesting too like the idea that Books are unpleasant because they disagree with each other. And he also yeah. mentions like none of these people ever li- ever lived, and I think he's pointedly talking about fiction, Characters, and also yeah. like why would you care about these stories when these people aren't real? Um, so that's kind of two different things, but both of them are interesting. I think he talks about. I think we get more into it once we get to that conversation later. Yeah, where he's talking about how he sees books as being like argumentative and making points and not not going along with the status quo and that's part of what what they're do- why what they're doing is a good thing because it's like making life easier for everyone else well and also yeah yeah like reading if you read two books that disagree with one another where does that leave you right right in maybe conflict. in an un- uncomfortable yeah you're in conflict and you're left to decide what makes sense to you from these two perspectives and he says later in his conversation, which I thought was a really point, like, I mean, we're, we're kind of jumping a, a little bit to get to that. But he says, you know, better to give people one idea, not two, or better yet, none at all. And it really is it's showing you like, I mean, that's that's Fox we're, News. That's, that's where that's, we're at. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's 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 exactly it's it's we're going to show you one side of it and then you can shut off and not consider any other side right? and not be in conflict. Like that's safe. That makes you feel safe because you're, yeah. you're, you're literally being told the thing you already believe. Now you can also say that about echo chambers on any side, right? And I think it's a, it's a nice cautionary tale to say that we should open ourselves up to alternative point of views, whether or not we agree with it, that it's just healthy, I think, to consider other sides. Exactly. Or anything. Well, yeah, you can't have every perspective. You can't have every viewpoint. So you need to talk to people who are different or yeah. from a different walk and, and have And it doesn't mean you're going to agree with it. Right. But the, I think the process of considering it is something that we should be doing more of because I think therein is how you find compromise. That's how you find common ground, right? Right. So let's let's get on with what happens here. So she, she says, basically, she's like, I'm not going to leave. And he tries to say, like, you're crazy. You got to come out of here. And she says, nope, we're not going to go anywhere. And so Beatty says, okay, well, we're going to burn the house down. Let's go, guys. And and uh, Montag tries to talk her out of it, tries to tell her to go. And she she basically says, don't, you know, you, you know, thank you for offering to, to help me out, but just go ahead. And then, yeah, she self-immolates, right? She burns herself alive. 
um, on the porch as they're all leaving. And uh, rather than let th- let them do it, she kind of like seizes control of the moment and, and lights herself on fire and lights all the books on fire. Um, so, Which haunts, we, I mean, this haunts Montauk too. Yeah, this haunts him. And, and, and what I like too is it doesn't just haunt him. It seems to really affect all the other firemen as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought in a brilliant turn, like, so first off, they're riding back in the truck. Montag asks him like, what is that thing that she said to us? And Beatty tells him, like Beatty knows what it is. He says, "Oh, it was this. It was this line where um, I didn't write it down, but he's it's, he's saying like um, we're going to light a fire the likes of which they've never seen." And he says it was one man told it to another before they got burned for heresy in like 1555 or something. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he knows that kind of takes everybody aback, right? And then he says like, "Yeah, we have to know some of these things if you're a captain." Right. So it seems like captains are privy to more knowledge. Which is which is also interesting to me too. Like the higher higher up you go, maybe the less controlled so your knowledge is. Yeah, I have yeah. something different that I felt like was going on here. I felt okay. like it wasn't necessary. I felt felt like the captain thing was an excuse. Like that wasn't actually something that captains do. I felt like he. So was, you're, you think Beatty might actually be tempted by this kind of stuff? I think that he was tempted and chose to chose to maybe saw. A certain perspective and and thought this is the this is the wrong way like like having all this information leads people to conflict leads people to war and all these other things people are having differences of opinion and maybe he's gone full-on like i don't want to say evil but like full-on like against the cause of of people who are trying to keep knowledge alive he's he's basically thinking that he's going to take it into his own hands to make sure that this stuff doesn't actually you know, plague other people. He wants people to actually, he really does feel like he's, he's doing a good thing, even though he, yeah. he has all his knowledge, but I don't know. That's kind of just what I got out of it. No, I, I like that. And, and, and so that's a classic storytelling thing, like a storytelling maneuver. And, uh, I like it because it, it backs up the idea that he's doing this. Um, and this is something all writers can pay attention to because this is a very uh, classic, like I said, way to set up a story in that your protagonist and your antagonist, which is a Beatty here are sort of, two sides to the same coin and uh Beatty is his foil right and a good way to do that is show how similar they are and and Montag points out how they look very much the same and the idea that Beatty was also tempted once right but he instead of doing what Montag is doing he instead it just made him even more adamant about his position right so in that sense they are opposites right and that's what makes them such good you know, to, to good people to come into conflict with each other. Definitely. And I mean, we've seen that in like a lot of like pop culture. Oh, um, yeah. People do this all the time in storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to just yeah. mention Black Panther. Killmonger yeah. and oh. Black Panther are like complete opposites. And, and like Great you example. totally see both of their sides of the coin. And Yeah, I mean, you can see it all over the place, right? It's, an, it's a lot. I mean, and it's not to say that's bad. Like that's it's because it works. And yes. that's a compelling story. Yeah, so the other thing I wanted just wanted to shout out here, I thought it was another just small moment of brilliance, but cool in, in and of itself. The guy who's driving misses his turn, and Beatty says, like, oh, you've missed the turn, man, and, like, tells him to, to do it, and, 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 and so they correct it. And the reason I say that's brilliant is I think it's, it's a way for the author to say that all of them are shook by this. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're uncomfortable, and they're kind of in a state of mind where you'd miss a turn, right? right. But Beatty isn't. He's still in control and he's the one who recognizes what they've done and he gets them kind of back on course. So I think he's like doing multiple things at once. He's showing, not telling, right? Like he's not telling us, oh, he, the, the guy was Everybody's clearly uncomfortable. All, right. It's really just like literally just a piece of dialogue from Beatty where he says, you've missed the turn. Mm-hmm. 
and that's it. And so, like, he's 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 accomplishing several things in one line of dialogue. So that I seemed brilliant to me. So we're back at home, or Montag's back at home, and he stumbles back into his bed, and he's he's really affected by what's happening. And his wife comes over later and feels his cheek, and he knows that it's wet. So the implication he's been he's been crying, right? Um, so very upset. Um, he asks them. This I think it's the next day. He asks her if she can remember when they first met, because he finds that he can't, and right. she can't either. It just feels like he, they've kind of always been together, and he doesn't know, like, when it started. Right. And there's no, like, importance to it. It was just, like, they just were, were going through the motions. Yeah, so this just shows, like, they don't love each other, right? Mm-hmm. And he feels like he doesn't even know her, like, she could be a stranger. I'm wondering, what is Bradbury trying to say about not having books in society that can lead to a relationship like this? Like, how does that, how does one thing lead to the other? Well, I think, I think he's specifically in her case, she's really fascinated by this show or these couple, these couple of shows and all this entertainment. And like the extreme version is that like everybody gets so caught up in all this, like really over the top middle of the road stuff, like very, like it's very broad. They choose to engage with this stuff because it's easier than the real world. So like dealing with a relationship, which eventually has problems is harder than just saying like, oh, like we're together and I'm just going to watch my stories and and live in in this world. And then whenever I have to, I'll come out and do whatever I need to. The danger is because you could the same could be said for books like you just what if you just read all the time and never, never connect with people. But I think the the difference being I don't think that he's he's not ragging on like entertainment in general. I think it's specifically like lowest common denominator stuff. If you if it's not challenging you, if it's not making you think, if it's not making you a better person or giving you a different perspective, then it's really just mindless stuff to fill the void of of you. Basically, like if you have nothing else going on. You just fill that time or keep yourself entertained. Yeah, man, I, I like that. And I think it I, I think you can s- extrapolate out to say that other relationships in this world are like this. Like it's not unique to their relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I say that he's making a statement about removing books from a society, it's because um, in novels and all that is that it creates a climate where people don't actually feel deeply anymore. And. And if that's the case, then it's like literally removing books from society is removing love from relationships. And, you know, like it's you have to take a couple steps to see those how those dots connect. But I think like I kind of buy it right. Like in this world where they're like people don't feel anymore, then you're going to numb yourself. And so then you're not going to actually love people because you're numb. Right. And if you're numb, you can't you're not able to have those kind of emotions. So, yeah, we also get more of the the TV parlor here and we see how these walls are basically saying nothing like it's an incoherent story. It's just people angry and talking about how they need to do things and like agreeing like, yeah, let's do something about it. And like nothing's happening. Um, She mentions how she really wants this fourth wall. And I want I I thought that was another symbolic moment where where she's in a room surrounded by three walls and all she wants is a fourth. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that says something about how humans can also be sort of um self-defeating right and just like you can people can literally crave the thing that is worst for them because all we want her to do is leave this room and experience your life and not and literally adding a fourth wall also like completes the box right like it like literally puts you in a prison because now you're surrounded on all sides um so i don't know that i think there's a lot kind of symbolically going on with this tv parlor right definitely Oh, she also calls the parlor her family 
and that's who she feels like this like connection with right right and she, and and that is also just like tragic in its own way right that that that's the people like we don't hear about any real family she feels like the people in on the TVs who clearly don't care about her at all because they're just television people right. <laughs> you know but she feels like they're her family and that's who she connects with yeah she i mean she tells him that when he so the, that day he woke up and he he was basically saying he was sick and she was saying like i can't be bothered by you being sick i need to be paying attention to my family and my like this is my favorite show all that kind yeah, of thing. yeah i'm missing my shows yeah yeah she she really wants to be alone she says i can't be bothered and, and then that's when he says you know maybe we all need to be bothered every now and then which was our throw early on basically right mm-hmm. And he says, there must be something to books. Like, there must be a reason why people, why someone would be willing to burn themselves over their books. Like, that kind of passion is just something he doesn't even understand. Yeah. Because he's been numb. So, right around this time as they're having this conversation, Beatty arrives at his house. Because um, he's, he's, he's late for work, right? He's, he's, he, he, he slept in late. And he's saying he doesn't want to go in. But something else that we, we got to set up yeah. is that that night when he got home, he had, the book that he had hidden under his armpit, he slept under his pillow. Yes, yeah, so it's under his pillow right now. While he's sick in bed. Yeah. Mildred lets lets Beatty in, and when he comes in, he like is like he's clearly looking over the house and inspecting it, right? And and not really paying attention to them. And so it makes us un- uneasy because we know he could be looking for books, right? That's what we're led to believe. And he comes in and he finally sits down and he starts talking to them, and we get this really interesting conversation where the whole time there's the, the drama of is he going to find out that there's a book under the pillow? And his wife is also like, like comes in and starts adjusting his pillow at some point, and that's when it really like ramps up. Well, it's cool because he's he's setting up all this drama, but he's also Beatty's like laying it all out there. Which is this this section's amazing. Yeah, this is like crazy stuff where he, he predicts everything basically. Well, and he's like, I'm going to tell you why we do the things we do, and he lays it all out there, like why they burn books, and he he even goes back through history and he says how. You know, movies started getting shorter, the books started getting shorter, the rise of tabloids, um, how like one page summaries of classics was more popular than the classics themselves. Which, I mean, we see this happening all the time. Just want right, to start, he's predicting. Yeah. I mean, this is before Spark Notes and like whatever, like the reading for dummies and like whatever it is. Like, what are those things where you get like the shortened version, right? Mm-hmm. This is this had to be before all of that. Right. So he's literally predicting it, which is pretty amazing. And then he talks about how like... That was what society wanted. So he's also talking about how society as a whole chose this world. It wasn't something where an authoritarian regime came in and said, we're going to ban all books. Literally, people like self-imposed this. And so that is also, like I think, a really powerful statement. And, you know, you can look at society making decisions that aren't in their own best interest. And we see that happening all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all this stuff here is is all happening basically today. They talk about like school being shorter and being easier and well, hi- we, history gets eliminated, um like certain arts classes, really... exactly. Art, things that people see as not important. I think there's a really strong element of anti-intellectual anti-intellectualism because there's a big thing about like the smart kid and how he gets bullied and how the smart kid makes other people feel inferior. So that's conflict, and so and yeah, you can't do that. So instead, so instead, they just make nobody know anything, right? Make everybody dumb. That that way, everybody can feel equal. Make people equal, not just like support their right for equality. And it's a big strong thing about like elitism, right? Like anti elitism. Like you can't have anyone who makes me feel infer- inferior. So we're going to make we're going to 
make sure that everybody's middle of the road. Now, I do want to say there is an element of Bradbury's and this book's fans who are extremely libertarian and use this book as a reason for saying that PC culture is ruining society and how you need, you need to have uncomfortable ideas. And being like this is against, like saying that this book is, is predicting the rise of trigger warnings mm-hmm. and saying that how bad that is and how you're sort of like, like round, you know, rubbing off all the rough edges to society is bad and that sort of thing. Which is interesting, because like I said, I think this is a prism where you can see a lot of things in this book, right? Right. Especially when you bring it to it. Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to like kind of put that out to you, because I've seen a lot of that when I've been researching this book. So what do you think of that side of it? Like the idea that PC culture and stuff is kind of what's being um, lambasted here and, and being shown to be bad. I mean, I can kind of see that. I can kind of see how this this book could be used to make that argument. But my thing is like with with all the PC culture, I think that there's a difference between realizing something that's like genuinely hateful and like genuinely meant to hurt somebody and then having conversations about those things. There's a difference right. between those things. So like by painting with a broad brush and saying these these things are are no-no topics and like we can't even talk about them, that's that's bad. Like that's a bad thing to happen. But like I think there should always be a conversation and there should always be explanation and, and reasons why because there's you know history of violence I mean that's just my opinion on it I think that we should be as politically correct as possible because you can you can lean too much into if you're trying to not be politically correct and you're trying to make sure all those rough edges are still there then you run into situations where you're offending people who you can't empathize with because you don't you haven't gone through the same things that they've gone through right um yeah so I think this book supports what you're saying um i think it uh, in some ways and i I, and and while i i understand what people i I understand where that idea comes from because i think you can look at it and say well pc culture is going to lead to the abolition of any book that has violence in it or any book that shows drug use or anything you find to be reprehensible as a society we're going to all of a sudden start demanding that our artists don't put that in their books but I think that that's kind of a straw man argument, and, I, and I've always felt that way, because what and when he talks about here, slippery ideas and ideas that are tended to be are, are tough to be pinned down should be embraced. So those trigger warnings, I, I've always said, are, are not about that. Like, I, it's never been this book has suicide in it. And so when I ask you for, hey, can you give me a trigger warning about suicide? I'm not saying don't write that book. I'm saying just give me a heads up. And literally trigger warnings are just about like preparing people for matter subject matter that they could find upsetting. It's really just like a kindness, right, to someone. And it's not saying, and I'm not saying no one ever says this, but I don't think the argument is you can't write a book that has that in it. Like, you know, even just like sexual assault. Don't ever put a book that has sexual assault in it. I don't think that's true. But I do think people are saying, if you're going to write that book, first off, it could be up to me whether or not I think it's bad. And then second off, give me a heads up so that I'm not blindsided by it because maybe that's something I've experienced. Right. And then you're going to literally traumatize me by bringing it back up. So I think, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with that. That's that's. You see the distinction I'm trying to make there? Yeah, it's uh, uh, that's basically you're articulating better than I was able to that like these things, like it's not that we should we should completely shun these things. And I, like, Sen- I, like It's I not censorship. Before. It's not censorship, correct? Right. It's it's like there should be a conversation here, 
and there should be there should be opportunities for these things to to be talked about but there's also a certain angle that people come from where they say like why can't i write this why can't i say this because that's not yours to, to say or tell or do right so like there's there's certain times where it's like if you wanted to write you know something that had like sexual assault in it and it was like very clearly not from a perspective that you shared you need to be careful venturing into that situation because you there are people who have been in that situation and so like yep. you said before having a trigger warning something like that and also making sure that you do your due diligence and make sure that it's accurate and and there's a reason why it's there that's basically my perspective on it is that like there it still sh- should be talked about and be there but just certain people don't want to experience certain things again or in general experience things yeah and 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 also the idea that we should be cognizant of someone else's feelings in the thing that we're writing is itself an idea that you find uncomfortable and you're being presented with it. You know what I mean? So that we can have a conversation about it and so that we can arrive at a middle ground and say, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't, you know, you can't content warning every little thing because you never know what's going to affect somebody. Right? Like there is some truth to that, but then there's the other side of like big things that can really traumatize people. And if we want to move away from content warnings, but like the idea of like, you know, we have a rating system for our movies saying this is an adult movie. This is rated R. Right. Right. This is PG-13. That is itself a warning, a content warning, right, for adults to know what their kids are seeing. Um, They're not saying this movie shouldn't exist, but they are saying this movie, maybe you need to be a certain age if you see it. Um, All of these things, it's a debate we should be having. And I think um, you, you can't look at that and say, this is just liberal trash because they're they're trying to like censor us and and we need to have our free speech where we can talk hate and like all this stuff like that in and of itself is shutting down the other side and you are engaging in a lack of free speech by saying that the other side saying hey this thing is hateful and damaging to society and you ignoring that you're also ignoring free speech in that moment so there's a lot of hypocrisy on both sides i guess i'm trying to say i don't know I guess, I don't know what the answer to this stuff is, but I do know that this book is trying to say that this is a conversation we should be having and we should never be presenting someone with either, with only one option, right? And completely ignoring the other side or literally zero options and just telling them what to think. And that itself is bad. Which is kind of interesting because I feel like in this in this area um, where he talks about this, the, I, they're talking about like, specifically, I think he says something about like political views. Like if well, he's you wanna, talking, he talks about minority views and how yeah. you can't step on them and all this stuff, right? Which right. you can see how people can take it certain ways. Right. So he they say he says like don't like you know if you don't want a man to like the, he says man, but if you don't want someone yeah. to worry about politics, don't give them two sides of perspective. Give them one, basically. Right. Or better yet, give them none. I think in the story, they're at the point where they're giving them none. We're at a point right now where people are actively giving people only one option. So like yeah. we need to be, you know what I mean? We need to make sure that we're diligent and, and looking for more than one perspective and, and all of that. Um, because actively people are trying to give one. Even that idea itself is something we should talk about. And and when you say we should give people more than one option, you know, does that mean that every does that mean that every concept and idea should be treated equally? Yeah. You know what I See, mean? And but, you can argue that there right. are dangerous concepts and there are dangerous ideas and um, like Nazism right. has no place in modern society. Well, there's lines and to be drawn. Someone could I will say, say "Oh, exactly," right. and, and and that's why but I'm saying I think it's moral lines to be drawn. I don't think it has anything to do with like your. I, I don't think it really even strikes a balance of political beliefs. I think it's 
can you put yourself in someone else's shoes? Can you look at this situation from a macro perspective and say like, this is not like, like in every situation you should think, is this hateful? Is this in some way what I'm doing hateful? And that should be your moral ground that you stand on. And I know people are going to draw the line at different situations, but like, I think, I hope for the most part, human beings are able to tell the difference between right and wrong. But we see that every day that people can't really, (laughs) the lines are blurred. So whatever. Yeah. What are we going to do? Yeah. (laughs) And, and, and I think just bringing it back to the book, it's trying to say, that these debates are worth having. And when the answer isn't easy, that means you're talking about something that's worthwhile, right? right? If there are two sides to it, and you can even, you can, you can debate that those debates are worth having. You know, the, you know have, studying philosophy where there's no easy answer is a worthwhile pursuit. Um, it's, it's saying that all of these things not only add value, but but create society as we know it and, and can lead to, you know, that's like the most important questions, right? Yeah. And and we should be uncomfortable when we talk about them and we should have our, you know, we should have ourselves challenged and have to be able to defend it. And the, the process of trying to con- like defend things and convince somebody in and of itself can teach you something. I don't know. I don't know where that leads us. I'm going to be really interested to see as we go through the book, if the book starts to like maybe crystallize it's what it's trying to say right. about those about those concepts. Because this is just like, it's a big kind of um, almost monologue by Beatty. And we learn a lot of stuff really fast, right? right? And this is all couched in his whole time he's talking about it. He's going, yeah, and it was good. It was right. Like this was the right thing to do, right? right. Make people happy and don't, you know, don't, don't upset them by making them feel inferior. And that, you know, very strongly talks you know, whenever I see someone saying like, you know, intelligence and uh, science and, and people, you know, that like people, there's a very strong sense of like, that's bad. What we really need is an everyman. What we really need is someone who is on my intellectual level because that person doesn't make me feel inferior and I should never have to feel inferior. Yeah. So there's a lot there. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's like, go read it because like I... We're not even doing a super great job of like conveying everything that's in these ch- in these pages. Yeah. Um, so I just recommend reading it. But um, definitely you can write in, you know, write in and let us know how you feel about it. Um, I have a feeling people are going to have strong feelings about this stuff, right? For sure. Um, but I do recommend you read the section, not just react to the stuff we're saying. <laughs> um, because, yeah, like I said, I don't know. It's it's There's a lot in there and there's a lot that you can view it from your own leanings and your own perspective. And you can kind of find things in there to latch on to. Right. So let's move on. Talk about what happens in the story. After Beatty leaves, he pulls out all the books that he's had hidden in the ventilator grill. And he says, we have to find out. Like, I have to find out what's in these books. He is at this point. He doesn't know if he's ever going to go back to work. Oh, also, as Beatty leaves, he says something like, he uh, knows. what would happen if someone were to accidentally take a book home with them, basically? And Beatty says, well, they'd have 24 hours to burn it themselves. And then then we'll come in and burn it for them. And I I got the strong impression this whole time that Beatty knows that he's having this conundrum and that he's being affected and that he's having doubts. Yeah. And Beatty's there to kind of say, it's okay to have these doubts as long as you come back around, right? As long as you throw yourself back into being a fireman. Right. And then he leaves and and, and uh, this is when Montag reveals to his wife that he has these like 20 books up in this ventilation grill. She says, we, we got to burn them. We got to burn them. This is illegal. And he says, no, we ha- like, I'm begging you as my wife, if you if you care about me at all. Let's look at these together and find out what what is going on. And they they, they give this line where he says, um, 
It is computed that 11,000 persons have at several times suffered death rather than submit to break eggs at the smaller end. And they're like, what the fuck does that even mean? They're very confused. And he says, all right, let's start from the beginning. Um, That line is from Gulliver's Travels. Hmm. Um, which I, I looked up, which I thought was interesting. And to me, it's 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 very much about people rebelling, right? It's about people being willing to die over what they believe is right. And so uh, to me, this is this is it's it backs up the theme of like rebellion, I guess, and mm-hmm. rebelling against society and and doing things and doing things that you believe in. That's basically the end of this section, right? And 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 we're we're left to wonder where does it, where does Montag go from here? I also wanted to ask you, do you think Clarice is really dead? Because, um, oh, also, I should have said, um, it's revealed that she was hit by a car, and he's totally blindsided by this, and, and, and um, his wife has known about it and just forgot to tell him um, that she got hit by a car and has just been gone. Um, and I, But I was wondering if, if that's true. Do you think it's true? Um, no, I'm not sure, because uh, and, I thought it was yeah, true. I sh- I should also say I don't remember if it's true. Okay, cool. <laughs> like I'm not, I don't have future like, knowledge. I was like, if you, if you know, I'm going to assume that it's not... It's been a long time since I've read this book, yeah. and I don't remember if it's true. Or no, I'm I'm not sure. I thought she was dead, um, because I felt like that would be a power. It was a powerful moment where he was just like, how the, he's like this person who was, you know, opening doors for me and and really saw life from a different lens is uh is now just gone and well, family's and she gone also and got hit by a car, which I don't know. Like, do you take something like do, no meaning out me. of that? Because she's like, yeah. she's by the road, like look, check, p- picking flowers and stuff, and she got hit by a car. Right. It sounds like she. Yeah. They were like, oh, we can't find any because they talked about how they they tried to go in the house. And there were no there were no books in the house, but they were just like, fuck it. She. Uh, we know that they're like talking about books or doing stuff that we don't agree with, so they probably just took her out. That that I think happened for sure. I think she is dead, and I think somebody killed her. Oh, so you think it was more deliberate, right? Okay, because you could also say that her pursuit of knowledge, at least in this scenario, led to her death because she was doing something she shouldn't have been doing, which is like picking dandelions by the str- by the road where people are driving very fast. That's that's kind of I don't know. Yeah. I think is, is that what actually happened or is that what they're telling him happened for yeah. a reason? I, I, I'm going to be curious to see. Yeah, I thought it was really cool that although he was hinting that we've got confirmation that like he had always been kind of debating this in his own. Like even though like he was really shocked into this like new way of seeing life by Clarice, he was always kind of saving these books and thinking there was some importance to them. Right, like he's been doing this for a while. Right. So that does show that this isn't something, well, this, this, yeah, he, it's a new thing for him to be thinking about it. It's always been nagging at him, and he has been thinking about it for a while. Yeah, do you have any, do you want to make any predictions going forward about what, how you think this book's going to go down? I mean, uh, I think like it's that? full on rebellion. I think that he's going to like lead a rebellion or something. Um, okay. I'm wondering he's if gonna it's going to be like You think that. he's going to change society with it, through his rebellion? I think he's going to try, yeah. I think that, it, I, I think that, there may be, I don't know if there will be, but it would be interesting if there was like that whole classic. I've just now realized that like all these things are bad, so I'm going to join a rebellion and then come to find out there's like a group of rebellion, like a rebellious group going on yeah. underground and they've been working all along and they're fairly well orchestrated and he can tr- like join in on the revolution. So you think there's an underground group he's going to go join? I think so. Okay. Now, what about his wife, uh, Mildred? Do you think she's going to be changed by what she reads here? Or do you think she's still going to resist? I think she's going to be like extremely resistant and then maybe by the end turn. But honestly, I think I could see it being more interesting if she was just like completely against it all the way through because she just wanted to get back to her stories no matter what. 
Okay. What about what about Beatty? Do you think he's ever going to come around, or do you think no. he's going to fit to the bitter end? I think he's to the bitter end. Cool. All right. And, you know, honestly, I don't remember the answer to a lot of these questions, but I don't want to speculate just in case somewhere in my subconscious I actually do remember what happened. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of this book, man. And, yeah, once again, I, I recommend this to people as a short read. Um, this is one where you could definitely check it out and kind of follow along with us. Uh, we'll be back next week with parts two and three. And uh, then we'll, yeah, then we'll get to the to the movie. All right, so I have one more question for you, but I think we should save it for the very end. And that's going to be, so you can start thinking about it. If you were in the house and all these books are getting burned and your hand starts going crazy and starts having a mind of its own and it grabs a book for you to preserve, you know, like what book does your crazy <laughs> hand grab? That's going to that's gonna be my question for you. But save your answer to the end. All right, all right. Let me think about <laughs> it. Let me think about it. Well, I'm thinking though. If you guys enjoy this podcast and you want to uh, leave a rating or review, that would help us out greatly. It helps other people see our podcast. It just helps us get out there and be seen by other potential listeners. So if you wanted to do that on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts, really, we would really appreciate that. Yeah, make sure to subscribe because those are the, we've been told that that's the metric that really matters, right? Um, so yeah, subscribe, follow, whatever you got to do, and that can also help boost us up the rankings. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to reach out and have a conversation with us about all this crazy, uncomfortable ideas that we've been talking about here, uh, you can do that by reaching out to us on social media, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're on all three, at Ink to Film. We're also on Goodreads. Uh, we have a book club. Or you can just email us, and that's at inktofilm at gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, then if you send us an email, we can engage with you that way. Um, maybe, uh, maybe even read it on the show if we have time. We also just recently started a Patreon, and we're really excited about that. Uh, we're going to be doing bonus episodes, having bonus content, and uh, we would really appreciate it if you checked that out and supported us. We're just basically doing it to keep the podcast going and engage with people who are really passionate about these projects that we do. Yeah, we had a great launch for that. Um, we, we still got a little ways to go before we hit our goal, um, and that's just to, to, to get enough money coming in to pay for this podcast so that we're not paying money to, to run it. But yeah, we made it, we made good strides towards that, but we're definitely looking to get some more people in. And like, yeah, like you said, we got good bonus content to, uh, to, to give you. Last up, we just want to say thank you to Audible. Once again, they've given us affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, you get those 30 free days and one free credit for any book in their audio, in their audiobook collection. Also, thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man, time for that final question. What's your little crazy hand gonna gonna steal and, 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 and preserve from the fire? So, I mean, I was thinking about this pretty hard and I feel like this is the a, a, co a correct answer. I don't think that this is the correct answer, but I feel okay. like this is an important story. Um, I chose Beowulf, like the original okay. template for fantasy writing. And right. I feel like I feel like th it's it's important be for structural reasons. It's important for just like uh, it was the blueprint for so many writers all the way down to current day. And I feel like I just feel like that's important because even if all that other stuff didn't exist, maybe some people could look at this one piece of, of work and maybe write some some really fantastic stuff. Beowulf's a great pick, honestly. Uh, I did not think you were going that route, but I like it. Uh, Beowulf is 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 a story that was passed down, you know, as far as we know, for a long time, and then it got written down. So it, it, that would be like a story that just has longevity, which is really cool to preserve. Uh, I went, I thought you were going to go the route I went because I, I went like kind of a, uh, it's not jokey, but anyway, my thought was this book, this is the, this is the book you steal and right. this is the book you preserve because 
someone reads it and understands the um, importance of not burning books, right? And the importance of preserving knowledge. And so, yeah, it's kind of cheat, kind of a cheat, really, because <laughs> you're preserving the book that's setting up the scenario in which we're discussing. But you know what I mean? In this in this scenario, the book's already been written in this book universe. <laughs> Right, 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 right. So there's some sort of yes. like time loop situation, <laughs> some paradox. But yeah, I think that's a good idea, man, because all, all, even, we haven't even finished the story and I can already see the importance of, of this book and, and what it has to say because it is, it's kind of just putting it all out there and saying like, like these, are the, these are the things that can happen to you. Hey, and we, we bring it full circle back to the asbestos-lined copies that he made so they couldn't be burned right right <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah i like that that's a little kind of full circle and then i think that's a good place to stop so uh let's I, I think let's call it for this week uh we'll be back we hope you join us for part two and three uh and uh until then i'm luke and i'm james see you guys later